0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Dennis, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. All right. All right. Isn't she pretty? Well, and, you know, I was looking at the program, and I, I saw that uh, Janice was going to chair this meeting, and uh, I said, "Oh, Janice K and Dennis Kay. I said, "That sounds pretty neat." You know, Janice K and Dennis K. My wife says, "Oh, yeah." <laughs> 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 you know, but. Uh, it's so wonderful to, uh, you know, to come to these things and not just as a speaker. You know, I go to a lot of conventions because I like to go to them. And I love to see people who have not been in the program for, you know, long times and that get involved. And, you know, they, I know there's somebody behind the scenes pushing saying, you can do this, you know, and it, it's so wonderful to see them get up there and, and, you know, come out from behind that wall and be able to share a little bit in the program, even if it's just stand up here and read the steps. Because I've seen so many people who, uh, that's the first time you see them doing something, and ten years later you go to a state assembly meeting and they're your state delegate or something, you know, and you can just see where they came from. It's wonderful. And I'd like to, you know, thank the committee for inviting me down here. I've been to Georgia a couple of times before, and, and it's always been a real good time. And I never really saw Atlanta very much because oh, I was just passing through but uh i I really you know do enjoy the city and i again like to thank them for inviting me down here and I'd like to thank Creighton for a wonderful message last night uh you know it it it's so important to get a conference off real good and i I think he did just a wonderful job the uh one thing when Creighton was talking about his name and everything and about how sometimes it gets a little messed up and uh because of anonymity, you know, we don't really mention our names too much. And, and uh, it reminded me of a gal at our home meeting. Uh, she just had a terrible time with that word, anonymity. And we would always let her read, you know, Traditions 11 and 12, um, you know, for her growth, you know, to, 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 to help her a little bit. And uh, that word anonymity would just come out any which way. And one night I was talking to her and I says, now listen. I says, just think of a girl named Anna. And her last name is Nimity. Now you just say her name. Anna Nimity. And she shook her head and said, no. And I said, you can do it. And she shook her head again and said, no. And I said, why not? And she looked up at me and just sparkled, those eyes just sparkled and she says, we don't use last names in (laughs) Al-Anon. And and that is, I was floored, you know. (laughs) What can you say to that? So, and it's really neat. I'm, You know, ran into some people here that I've known from other places, and uh, in fact, right before the meeting, it was really surprising. Somebody came up to me and uh, introduced themselves, and We were at an Al-Anon convention together 13 years ago, and she remembered me from there. And, and, uh, you know, it's just amazing how I think what it says on the bottom of the program there is we trudge this journey, you know, where our paths will cross. And uh, you meet people in this program, and, you know, they're never out of your life. At some point in time, you're going to meet them again. You're going to hear about them. And it's just wonderful getting to know the people in this fellowship. It's a lot different than when I first came to the doors of this program. When I got here, nobody, (laughs) would if they did know me, they wouldn't admit it, put it that way. Uh, And I didn't know many people because that wall had been built up and we were total isolationists. But I'll go back to the beginning and let you know a little bit about how it was. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I had a pretty normal childhood. I remember my mother with her six-pack every night. And a lot of times since she wasn't home, I knew the corner bar where she was. But I can honestly say I never saw her drunk. You know, alcohol was not a problem. She drank, but that was it. My father was not a factor in our lives. They were divorced when I was very, very young. It was just my mother and an older sister and myself. And I had a pretty good childhood. By all rights, you know, I should be, you know, a mass murderer or something. You know, I grew up in public housing projects, single family, you know, low income and everything. You know, but we managed to survive that. And I have good memories of my childhood. So I can't lay claim to I did this because I had a bad childhood. That wasn't it at all. And I went in the Air Force. And while I was in the Air Force down in Virginia... Wanted to get away for a weekend, so I went up to Pittsburgh. That's where my mother's from, and I have lots of uncles and aunts and cousins there. And my cousin says, I'm going to a dance. Would you like to go to a dance? And I said, Sure. So I went to this dance and she introduced me to some gals that she went to high school with. And you know, you meet a number of people, but this one person just stands out. That's the one that catches your eye. And this one gal did. And the other gal was just so so, and this one was just Real nice. And I said, that's the gal I want to get to know. So a few months later, I was back in town, and my cousin says, the gal I'm talking on the phone to that gal you met at the dance. I said, oh, well, let me talk to her. So I got on the phone and talked to her, and I said, hey, would you like to go out tonight? And she said, yes. So I got directions to her house, and that evening I went over and knocked on the door. She opened the door, and it wasn't the one I thought. It, <laughs> My 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 cousin was talking to Soso, you know, and um, Soso was sitting right out here in the second row. And this past June, we were married 31 years. You know, so uh, uh, so that was our first date. You know, I, I couldn't turn around and walk away. What do I do? You know, uh, but it's been exciting. I uh, tell you that. Uh, I, I, without her, I wouldn't be here today. I, you know, it was so. Uh, so we we uh, courted for a couple of years, and it was uh, interesting. You know, I was in uh, down in southern Virginia. She was in Pittsburgh. 425 miles every weekend, and you know, I went for two years back and forth on weekends like that, and all kinds of weather. And somebody says, "You're crazy for doing that." And I, the way I look at it now is, is I think I was just willing to go to any lengths to marry an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, what it was. So, uh, but we got married and moved down to Virginia and we had our first son down there and, and, uh, she had problems. She had physical problems and, and was on a lot of medications. And, uh, we, I got out of the Air Force, and we moved back up to Pittsburgh, and we had our second son there, and she still had physical problems and was on a lot of medications. Then I got a job offer to move back to Detroit, my hometown, and we took that, and we moved back to Detroit, and she had more physical problems in and out of hospitals and more medications. And eventually I noticed that these pills were going very rapidly, and uh, you know she was acting kind of strange. And... I realized that she, you know, she was taking more than she should, and I went to the doctors and the pharmacy, and I told them, "Don't you give them any more." And uh, they they shut her off, they cut off her supply, and I figured, "Oh, that take care of that." Well, I didn't understand anything about addiction and compulsive illnesses, and when I took her supply of pills and things away that she was used to, she just switched over to alcohol, and. My introduction to alcoholism was not gradual, because one day she was taking pills, the next day she was screaming and yelling because she didn't have any pills, and the next day I came home from work, and she was passed out in the middle of the living room floor, and there were three empty fists on the floor, and that was day one of alcoholism in our home, and it went downhill from there. I didn't have a break-in period. You know, I had no, dear, you're drinking too much at a party or anything like that, you know. You know, what do you do on day one when there's three-fifths? You know, it's just...
1: Uh,
0: so, so you know, I, I kept asking her, why, why? And, and you know, I got an answer, I miss my family. So I went to work and said, we got to move, and we're going back to Pittsburgh, and we moved back there. And she thinks that, to this, you know, today sometimes that I did this on purpose, but we wound up moving like 25 miles out in the suburbs to an area that had no bus service, they had no state stores where she could buy the booze, and she didn't drive. And, uh, you know, it was all just pure coincidence. <laughs> but, um, of course, you know, the reason she drank wasn't because she missed her family. It's because she was an alcoholic, and so that it continued. And um, the real disintegration of our family started there. Because I uh, would get up in the morning and uh, I'd look at her we'd have our little morning fight. And uh, I'd get in the car and I worked 70 miles away at that time and I would drive 70 miles to my job and I'd be thinking how good it is to get away from what I'm leaving. And I would work real late because, of course, they couldn't get along without me. I was Mr. Indispensable at work. Um, I was telling Janice and Pat, you know, as we we're talking and everything, my... I'm, I'm in the computer business, and I work with computers. And, um, you know, I was the one who was Mr. Know-it-all, I guess you might best way to describe it. You know, people would come and ask me questions, and I'd say, oh, here's how you do it and all that. But then I'd remind them that if they weren't so stupid, they might know the answer, too. See, because things were so bad at home that I felt a total failure as a husband and a father. I was raised by my mother and one older sister with no father in the home. And when I got to the age where I started to go out and date girls, I remember I would always get this little lecture, and it's basically it always went along the theme of, number one, be good, don't get in trouble. You know, I didn't even know what they were talking about. Uh, and the other thing is, when you grow up and you have a family, you are responsible. I think they were trying to instill in me a sense of responsibility that my father didn't have. So here I am, I grew up, and I had a family, and it was a mess. I mean, every night, I'd have that 70-mile drive home, and all the way home, I'd be thinking about what I was going to find. And when I got home, that's what I'd find. And I was responsible. I was supposed to do something about this, and I had no idea what to do. But at work, I was useful. I was a success. You know, I I, I could do things well but I I took it out on other people. And, you know, I would have that 70-mile drive home and late, and sometimes I'd get home and uh, she'd be in her usual condition, passed out. And our two boys were like kindergarten and first grade age, and they were, you know, if they were awake, I'd wake them up and give them the bag of hamburgers I brought home, and I'd take them upstairs and put them to bed. And things got to the point where she wound up going into the hospital. And the first time she went in the hospital, she was there six months. And, you know, most people would make arrangements to have their children taken care of. I can not ever remember asking a neighbor, you know, I'm going to get home from work at so-and-so time. My kids get home earlier. You know, will you keep an eye on them? I didn't do that. Because if I went to a neighbor and asked them to do that, they might say, where's your wife? And I couldn't tell anybody where she was or why she was there, because I was responsible. I was supposed to do something about it. So I bought him a baseball mitt and a baseball, and I told him play out in the back, and if it got dark, come in the house. And that went on for close to six months. And I thank my higher power today that nothing ever happened to those children. I'm sure the neighbors watched, but I know I never asked either. And that was the denial of the disease. I could not tell you what was going on in my home. Eventually, it kind of became kind of hard to keep it you know a secret. Uh, when you have ambulances and flashing red lights and police cars and things like that outside your house, um, it's kind of hard to keep that a secret. And we had those things. Uh, there were suicide attempts and overdoses, and you know, I'm not going to tell our story in detail, but we had all those things. And we had a lot of, uh, activity at our house. I'll call it that. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the neighborhood would have picnics in the back. They had a big grassy area in the back of these uh, apartments or townhouses we lived in. And I'd come home and see all the neighbors out there. It was sort of like a program covered dish. You know, one neighbor would bring the baked beans. The other one would bring the potato salad and everything. But we didn't, we were never invited. And I'd sit there and look out the window and get real mad that you know, I couldn't understand why they shouldn't invite her, but why didn't they invite me? See, well, one reason was that, you know, as I said, she didn't drive and I did. And when we had our arguments and our fights and everything, you know, uh, first thing I would do is move away from the TV because she'd be throwing things, you know, and they'd be bouncing off walls and people on both sides of us would hear things going on in the the apartment and everything because, you know, we had people on both sides of us. And then when it got too bad, I. Well, of course, she doesn't drive, so I'm the one who leaves, you know, and I'd walk out and I'd slam that apartment door so hard that the windows would rattle and the neighbor's windows would rattle. And I'd get in the car and I'd squeal rubber and out the parking lot. And as I'm doing it, I see all these curtains part and all these neighbors are peeking out the windows and looking at me. And I'm thinking, look what she made me do. It's all her fault. And then I wondered why they wouldn't invite me to their gatherings, you know. They, they never saw her, but they saw this madman man running all around the neighborhood, you know, doing things. And um, one time I came home from work and my neighbor was talking, to, uh, standing outside. And, he, and this guy never talked to me, but he says, I want to say something to you. I said, oh, what is it? And he said, I just have one question. He says, why do you beat your wife? And I said, what? And he said, why do you beat your wife? And I thought of what it was and... Uh, I don't know about the alcoholics that any of you may know, but the one I lived with didn't handle steps real well. And we had a two-story townhouse, and she, those steps in her had a lot of problems. <laughs> and, uh you know, she, every time she would go outside, she was always black and blue from falling down the steps. And he would hear all this fighting and screaming and yelling and then see her black and blue, put two 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 together, you know. And he said, why do you beat your wife? And I could have told him just what I told you. And I looked him right in the eye and said, because she deserves it. Because he, if I said, she's drunk, she falls down the steps, he'd say, you're responsible. Why don't you do something about it? I would rather have had people think I was a wife beater than to say, I can't handle her. I don't know what to do with her. That denial that I was driven into is just, you know, unbelievable as I look back at it. And one night we had one of our fights. As usual, I went out and got in a car, and I'm going to leave. And she came out after me, and she stood next to the car. And she says, you're not going? And I said, yes, I am. She said, no, you're not. I have my foot behind the wheel. Well, when she's drunk and I'm mad, we're both very stubborn people. So she stayed, and I left. And as I backed out of the parking lot, I see her hopping around the parking lot on one foot. I noticed this little bump as I went by, you know, but, uh, um, uh, so, uh, she's hopping around and I had driven over her foot and my very first thought was, are those curtains open? Are those neighbors looking, you know, and I looked around and then I pulled back in and sometimes I have to remind her to even now that, you know, be grateful I didn't get her again on the way back in, <laughs> but, um. I got her in the house, and she's moaning and groaning about her foot. And uh, she wants to go to the hospital. And we've been to the hospital a lot of times. You know, I've ridden behind ambulances, in ambulances, and I didn't want to go to the hospital again. So I gave her a bucket of hot water and tore her to soak her foot. And uh, she's soaking her foot in this bucket of hot water, and she's still screaming and yelling about how it hurts. And the guilt starts to set in. And I'm thinking, oh, jeez, you know, maybe it's broke and maybe we really do have to have it taken care of and everything. I says, look, I'll make a deal with you. I says, I'll take you to the hospital, but you can't tell them I drove over your foot. So you have to say something like you dropped an iron on it or something. You know, and she said, OK, OK. And, um, you know, nobody would have believed it anyways. To this day, I've never seen an iron that left tire tracks. But, um, you know, um, but I, I, I got her in the car. And we went off to this hospital, and I said, you know, my wife hurt her foot, and they gave me a wheelchair. And I went out and got her in the car, got her out of the car, put her in the wheelchair, and I wheeled her up the ramp, and they got the electric eye on the doors, and these doors, electric doors opened up, and I rushed her through the doors. And those doors weren't even closed behind me yet. And she is screaming at the top of her lungs, That son of a bitch ran over my foot! She... I refer to that as the day all trust was lost. You know, you know, we we had we had a deal, you know, but and and she's screaming and yelling at these doctors about me running over her foot, and and by this time she was on first name basis with the emergency room there. They knew her, and uh, the doctor walked up and said, "How are you today, Charlene?" And she's pointing at me and yelling and saying all this, and he just shook his head and looked, winked at me. You know, he knew she was nuts. You know, he didn't believe a word she said. You know, so I got away with that one, but, um, things went on sort of like that for about three and a half years in Pittsburgh. And, uh, finally one day at work, my boss said to me, uh, you know, there's something wrong. (laughs) And I said, yeah, a little bit. And I told him a little bit about what was going on. And he said, do you think a move would help? And I said, yeah, if we could just go somewhere and get a fresh start, you know, so I work for a nationwide company, in fact, international and, uh he shopped around a little bit, and he said, How's Washington, D.C.? No, wait, how's Dayton, Ohio sound to you? And I said, Wonderful. We'll go to Dayton, Ohio. And we talked to a manager of, of the department down there, and he said, Yeah, man, you know, we need people. we are we're, we're them. So we're, we're all set. We're going to go to Dayton, Ohio. And a little while before we were supposed to go, my boss comes in and says, Come on in the office. And I get in there and on the phone, and he says... Got the guy in Dayton on the phone. So I get on the phone, talk to him, and he says, well, I'm sad, you know, I'm sad to inform you that uh, I have to rescind my offer. He says, uh, we can't take you on here. And I said, why? I says, I thought it was all set. And he says, yeah, it was. He says, but at, at our department meeting, I made the comment that I was hiring you. And three of the people that worked for me stood up and said, if he comes, I quit. They had worked with me in the past. And they wanted no part of it again. I wasn't the drunk. I had more problems with people than she did. You know, like I say, it it, it was just really strange. I would treat people just terrible because I was better than them. There. Because at home, I was nothing. I was a complete failure at home. So I felt superior anywhere else. So our move to Dayton was over. And finally they came up with Washington D.C. So we moved off to Washington D.C. And of course, you know, we took ourselves with us, so the problem stayed there, you know. Uh, and things started to go downhill there. And that separation, that isolation, that the pain got worse. And I would sit there at night and I would watch TV. And she would be passed out. And my favorite show was Star Trek. And I'd watch and my favorite person was Mr. Spock. Because he was the man with no emotions. See, there was a time when I was driving home from that job and I'd be coming towards the house and I'd say, what am I going to do tonight? Am I going to be Mr. Compassion? Oh, honey, why? what's wrong? Or would I be... The fear of God thing. You know, if you do that again, I'm going to break your neck. Or I would be the guilt one. What did I do to make you drink today? But those times are past now. You know, I came home and all I had was despair and deep anger. And I had no more words. I didn't know what to say. There was a time when I used to look at what was going on in our home and ask myself, when is this going to end? I had stopped asking that. I no longer asked, when will this end? I can remember back then saying to myself one day, this is it. This is the way it's going to be. I remember that so vividly when the first time I walked into one of the AA clubs in Dayton and they got a sign on the wall that says, hope is found here. Because I realized what it was then was total loss of hope. I had given up asking, when will it change? This is it. So I would sit there and watch Star Trek and Mr. Spock and the man with no emotions. And I'd say, if I could be like him, then this wouldn't hurt me. I wouldn't feel the way I am. So I worked at becoming Mr. Spock. And I did. I had no emotions. I blocked everything out. And one of the things I did to stay away and get out of the house was to coach little league baseball. Our boys were at the age where they were in Little League. One night I came home, and the boys were dressed in their game uniforms because of a game that night. And I said, get in the car. I want to go in and see Mommy. And I went in the house, and I looked around, and I finally found her back in the bedroom. And she was lying on the bed, and there were empty pill bottles, empty booze bottles. And I leaned over, And I put my ear right by her nose and her mouth, and I could barely hear her breath. And I looked on the nightstand, and there was a note. And I picked up the note, and I can remember the words on it like it was yesterday. And the note said, you and the kids will be better off without me. And things like this had happened before. And I did the same thing I'd always done before. I grabbed that phone, I started to dial the rescue squad. But this time, I got about halfway through dialing that number. And I stopped and I looked at that note again. You and the kids will be better off without me. And I said, she's right. This is how it's going to end. I couldn't see any other way. And I put that phone back down. And I put that note back on the nightstand. And I said, nobody will know I was in here. I can just say, I found her. And I turned around and walked out. I closed that bedroom door, and I went out and got in the car and said, Come on, kids, let's go to the game. I had reached that point where there was no tomorrow. There was nothing else left. So we went to that game, and we were there for a few hours. And when the kids came home, they wanted to go in and get a drink. And I said, No, go down and tell the neighbor kid about the game. Because I didn't want them to go in and find Mommy. Because I fully expected her to be gone by now. I thank my higher power today that she isn't. She came through that. But I was at the point where I no longer cared. Anything that was going to happen was what was going to happen. And I think that was a turning point in the sense of I quit the arguing. I quit the fighting. You know, and and quit trying to show her how bad she was. Things I used to do when she would be literally laying on the floor and I'd be standing over her calling her names the things that I did. I didn't do that anymore. And it was not too long after that that she wound up going in the hospital and while she was there, she got into, you know, they brought in meetings and she met this gal from AA. And after she got out of the hospital, of course, she drank again. And things got back to the usual case the way she was. And one day, this gal from AA came over to the house and she saw Charlene sitting in a chair with a blanket wrapped around her, and I was spoon-feeding her out of a bowl. She had been in that chair for about three days. And she said, what are you doing? She said, she's dying. You have to do something. And here I am, the computer wizard, the man who knows it all. And I looked at her, and I couldn't even say anything. My mind was complete jello. I had no idea what to do. I'd totally given up. What's going to happen is going to happen. And so it was taken on my hands. This gal picked up the phone, called the doctor, called the hospital, arranged for the room, made another call, called this guy in AA. Next thing I know, this guy, all I remember about him is cowboy boots and cowboy hat. He he comes in the door. The gal packs the suitcase, throws some of my wife's clothes in it, and this guy walks over to the chair. My wife's sitting there in the blanket. He picks her up, and they go out the door. And they didn't even tell me where they were going. I literally gave my wife to AA. I thought somebody who wants her. They can have her. You know. So, you know, they, they eventually told me what hospital she was in and everything and went out to see her and they told us about her treatment place. And actually in D.C. there were two of them. One was where all the senators and congressmen's wives went. And I couldn't afford that one. And the other one was this place that was, you know, more for the common folk. I couldn't afford that one either. And, I You may find that hard to believe today about what happened, but I talked to these people and they told me what the cost was per week and that we didn't have any insurance that covered it. And I said, I don't have that. And they said, well, we'll work something out later. I think things have changed since then, but I'm very grateful that's the way it was then. And she went there and they said, you can come out and visit her on Sunday afternoons. And the first... Yeah, they said that at 1 o'clock. So I went out there one Sunday afternoon, a little bit before 1, and I said, Okay, I'm here to visit her. And they said, Well, you can see her at 2. And I said, Well, what am I supposed to do? You said, I could see her at 1. I said, No, you come to visit 1. But what we got here is she's in an AA meeting from 1 to 2. And you go in that room over there. And I said, What's in there? And they said, You go in and find out. So I went into this room. And there were all the family members of the inmates. And um, there there were these two lunatics sitting up at the front. And they were expounding this profound wisdom upon us. And I thought, my God, how amazing. And after 20 minutes, I I had to tell them. And I stood up and I said, you're all crazy. And I walked out of the room. That was my first Al-Anon meeting. Uh, Because what they were telling me was something that I... No way could I believe at that time. But I'd like to share it with you today, because today I believe it from the bottoms of my feet to the top of my head, every fiber of my body, I believe what they said. But I didn't at that moment. And what they said was, in your mind, you get a picture of the alcoholic in your life. And you just get a real sharp focus on them, and you just imagine that it starts to change shape, and out to the side, something comes out, and it takes shape, and you look at it, and it's a bottle. And now you see two things. You see the alcoholic, and the bottle represents alcoholism. And you don't need to love alcoholism, but you can love somebody who has that disease. And I thought that was the biggest piece of crap I'd ever heard in my life because for years it was her who was ruining my life. But of course what the program taught me it was alcoholism ruining our lives. I never knew that there was another border in our house somebody living there like that you know but there it was. But I couldn't understand that at that first meeting, of course. And I love it today when people come back for their second meeting and say, oh, last week I heard, oh, this is wonderful, you know, and I think, good for you. You keep coming back, you know, because I wasn't that easy. But I went to a couple of the meetings out there, and then she informed me she was going to a halfway house to live with a bunch of alcoholic women, and she went there. And, of course, my helpful attitude was, give me the address, and when you get there, all your clothes will be on the porch. Because... My God, she had the 30-day cure. Come home now and be the good wife you should have been. Make up for all the bad times. That's what I wanted her to do. I had no understanding of what was going on. But she had the will and the strength and the backing to disregard my insanity and go to where she needed to go. And then I would go out to this halfway house on Sunday afternoons, and I'd walk in and talk to her. And we'd fight and argue, and the lady who ran the place would kick me out. And then the next day I'd come back and I'd walk up the sidewalk with a bouquet of flowers and walk up and knock on the door and they'd part the curtains and look out the window and say, Go away. And then I'd go home and I would call the place and I would talk to this lady who ran the halfway house and I would tell her she's not keeping me from my wife and blah, 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 blah. And then I would accuse her of trying to break up our happy marriage. So um, and then finally she said, you know, if you quit, if you keep doing this and upsetting this place, I'm going to have to ask her to leave because you're upsetting the whole house. And for some reason, that's I said, that won't be a good thing to do. And I said, I, 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 you know, that's not good that she leaves there. So I quit doing that and she stayed. And uh, it was about a year and I was home with the two boys. And they said I had to go to Al-Anon to get uh, visiting privileges. So, I'm, you know, a lot of people go to Al-Anon for different reasons. You know, I went to learn a few buzzwords and get visiting privileges. And uh, I'd go to see her and say steps, slogan, serenity, and all this stuff and everything. And uh, But, that, you know, I was going to meetings. And when she came out of there and we got back together, um, and we went and got a new apartment over near... You know, we were living in Virginia, and the halfway house was in Maryland. And so we moved over to Maryland to get close to the meetings. That was the first time I really had to be honest with somebody relating to in the program because when we went to get a new apartment, they turned us down. That was because I had like a X X rating, credit rating. And you see, um, years later, you know, in the program, I was listening to alcoholics tell their stories. And, you know, they had problems with police and they had problems with jobs and they had problems with credit. And I'm sitting there nodding my head and nodding my head. You know, I had all those problems. But I wasn't drinking, you know, and the first time I gave my little mini lead about 15 or 20 minutes long or whatever it was after the meeting, two alcoholics come up and said, don't take a drink. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you're one of us, you know, I just don't drink. And, um, you know, because we had all these bills and medical problems and those were her. It was all because of her. It was her problem and I didn't pay. We had all kinds of problems. So, I had to stand there and tell that person what was going on in our lives. And I told him about the halfway house and the treatment center and us being apart for about a year and that I was going to Al Anon and we were trying to get it back together. And the apartment manager said, well, we'll give you a try. You know, so they they were kind enough to give us a place to live, you know, and move into their apartment. that, that, That was interesting doing that and the fact that I was able to do it because Like I said before, I'd rather have you think I beat her than tell you that she fell down some steps. And now I'm telling somebody I don't even know that what was going on in our lives. Because they said, that's what I should do. So we started to go to meetings and we started to make friends and get to know people. And it was slow. You know, at first we weren't even allowed to sit in the same room together. She would, because we'd fight a lot. And she would sit in the kitchen and talk on the phone and I'd sit in the front room and we'd pass in the hallway, and, they, and they'd be told, if you can't say anything good, just say the serenity prayer. So we'd walk by each other, and you'd go, God grant me, you know, you, know, and that, that, you know, that's all you'd hear. And, um, you know. Uh, and I can remember one night sitting there and I was watching, there was a TV show or something coming on I wanted to see. And I said, well, I skipped a meeting tonight and everything. And I said, well, then I didn't go last night, but that's because I had this other important thing to do. And then tomorrow night I really got this and that. And actually I knew I, I had to count for all seven nights of the week why I didn't have to go to a meeting. And I thought for a minute and I said, wait a minute. I, we don't fight as much when I go to meetings. And it dawned on me. I didn't say when she went to meetings. We don't fight as much when I go to meetings. And it was the first realization that maybe this program was helping me a little bit. And I kept going. And I was in over, a little over a year, and uh, there was this old-timer, that, you know, the group old-timer that we just dearly loved. Their name is Mary. And uh, I lo- I got to the point where I really wanted to listen closely to what Mary and her friends had to say. And and we had this big big square set of tables you know And i'd come in and mary was last week was sitting on that side of the table so i'd go sit over there and they'd come in and they'd sit the other side and then next week i'd say okay i'll be over there so i'd go in i'd sit that side and they'd come in and they'd sit down on the other end of the table and it kept i could never catch up to them you know where they were and finally one night after a meeting mary was talking to me and we were just there one-on-one and she says you're coming along fine and i said oh i don't see any big deal she says oh yeah Because I've seen the changes in you. And she started to talk about the changes she had seen in me so far. But she started from the basis of what she saw when I first walked in the room. And she started to tell Dennis what Dennis was like. And she read me like an open book. I mean, she was telling me things that I knew were absolutely true that I had never said to anybody in my life. And she was just telling me about me. And while she was doing that, I was thinking... You know, this This is just amazing that she can do that. And I said, you know, maybe I really do belong here. And the more she kept talking, the more I became convinced. And to me, that was a a real memorable night because I firmly believe that night I took the third step and made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And God as I understood him that time was her and the program, the people in it. And I made a decision. I think, I'm going to come back. I quit wavering. And near the end of that talk, she told me, she says, you know, Mary is a black lady in Washington, D.C. And she says, you know, I was raised in the ghetto. And she says, I was raised with people with criminal records as long as your arm. But I was never afraid of a man in my life until the night you came into our meeting. And that's why I could never catch them. They would see where I was and sit at the other end of the table. And she said, we didn't want to be near you the night you exploded. <laughs> you know, I, I, I see people sitting out here with some bright red shirts on, and boy, they're pale compared to my face at the time. Uh, our first Christmas in the program, I asked Charlene what she wanted for Christmas, and she says, I want you to go get a physical, because she thought I was going to explode, have a stroke or something. It took a long time for that anger to, to leave, a long time. And I was reminded tonight of what I had said once before, that Alanon put the fire out. You know, I was so angry, so mad, but that anger lasted. I can remember one time I went to a local community college in Dayton and uh, was asked to come and give a talk about how alcoholism affects the family to a uh, health class at the college. And I gave this talk and the teacher said that uh, I'm going to have the students critique your talk and write it up and I want you to know what they say. I said, fine. So a week or so later, I get a letter from the or an envelope from the teacher and he had enclosed a number of letters that the students had written. And they said various things, you know, most of them nice and, and they, different ones would point out different things I had said. And I thought, well, that's nice. This one hit that one, that one hit that one. And it showed they were listening, at least. But the real thing that really set me off on that one was this one person said that we had this speaker named Dennis come to our class. And, gee, he could have really been one of the best speakers we had if if only he wasn't so quiet. It, you know, if he was just a little more, you know, you know he, he said he was so uh, soft-voiced or whatever it was. And I, and I thought, my like, God, funny he knew where I came from. You know, I thought that was the greatest compliment that somebody could have paid me because of the way the program works. You know, I was a lunatic when I got here. I would scream and yell at everybody. And here's a guy saying my only default was I was quiet, you know, and uh, I thought that was great. So we, we made, you know, we started to make friends and a job move came. And I didn't like the job I was on. And we I got a job offered this time to move to Dayton again. And this time nobody threatened to quit. And we moved to Dayton, Ohio. That was back in 77. And we love it. We thought we'd never have friends like we had in the program in Washington where we first came in. But, of course, that's not true. You do meet friends. And some of our dear friends from Dayton are here today. And through the years, you know, we've we made many friends. We both got involved in service for a while, and I was in longer than Charlene as far as service. And I became a, D, a GR and a DR. And eventually I became alternate delegate for the Ohio. And then uh, in one insane afternoon, these people in a State Assembly meeting in Ohio called my name off, the number of times that was needed, and they marked him off on the board, and they said, we have a new delegate. His name is Dennis. And I thought, my God, they've done it. This is ridiculous. And uh, I just put my head down in my hands and, you know, thought, well, here we go. We'll see what happens. And that night I went home, and I got, I, I told Charlie, and I says, I have to make a call. And I got on the phone and I called that lady in Washington, D.C., actually in Maryland, who had ran that halfway house, who became my wife's first sponsor. And I told her what those lunatics in Ohio had done, that they elected me to be their World Service Conference delegate. And she laughed and she said, well, I knew if you keep coming back, you'd finally get this program. <laughs> and uh, that was a wonderful experience and a real honor and a privilege to be able to represent my Ohio al and go to the world service and get get to meet Lois and all the people there and go to go to Bill's house and all that. But the biggest thing was really getting to know what they call it when they we, we read Al Anon as a whole. It wasn't Al Anon in Washington, it wasn't Al Anon in Dayton. It was the fellowship of Al Anon as a whole worldwide. And to sit there and hear somebody from Utah say, Yeah, you do it this way in Dayton, but you know it's different out here and we need to do it this way and get to understand how the, those World Service handbooks and everything are guidelines. They're not the Word of God. They're not absolute law. You know, you try to. Not everything works the same way for everybody everywhere. And and the, the input that comes into that stuff. And I am such a absolute. Well, I'm rigid on it, really. Conference approved literature. Conference approved literature. I. I, I, I I go, I read if I see somebody bring non-conference literature into a meeting because I've seen the preparation and the work that goes into it. I've seen arguments over this. This sentence, is it going to be misinterpreted? Is it going to say, you know, be interpreted to be not what the program really means? And I've seen the input from the fellowship. Uh, we had one meeting in Dayton that was using the way something was worded in one of the service manuals to exclude, exclude people from a meeting. The way they were reading it and interpreting it, they were telling people, go away. You don't belong here. And I was told about that. And I brought that up in New York. And somebody from Wyoming said, gee, we've had the same thing. And somebody from Florida said, we've had the same thing. And all of a sudden, we all realized, this needs to be changed. And we've changed it. And that's how the program works. And so that's why I love love the conference group stuff, because it's input from everybody in the fellowship. It was a wonderful four years. I went four times because I went one year as alternate. I got an extra month. And near the end of my term, our oldest son came in one night, and uh, he said uh, he quit drinking. He had, a, you know, a couple months. He had DWI a couple of months ago. Never told us about it. And uh, he stood there in our front room having DTs. He was shaking, quivering, didn't know what he was doing. And I said, "Will you go to treatment?" And he didn't want to go at first. And then I said, "Will you go what if we get you room?" And he said, "Yeah." So I went in and we called the treatment center and we we know the director out there and he said, Bring him out, we we'll got him a room and I'm driving him out there that night and that road is a straight, narrow road, and he's in the back seat yelling about all the curves and the road wiggling and everything, you know, and we got him into that treatment center. And he was there for a while and he left and he went then he went back into the psych ward at another another one and he left there and, and then finally one night we uh got a phone call from his girlfriend and and he had come over to her house after taking a whole bottle of uh, sleeping pills or something. And she didn't know, what do I do with them? I said, get him to the hospital. We'll meet you there. So my wife and I got in the car, and we drove over to the hospital. And I can remember that night sitting in the hospital, or standing there in the emergency room, and they had him on that cot, and they had all the tubes in him and they were pumping his stomach. And I thought back to nights where I had stood and watched my wife on a table like that. And when she was there... And I was standing next to her, I was yelling at her, and I was calling her names. And that night, I stood there and I put my arm around her, and I gave her a hug. And we didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. And I told her, I said, we'll be all right. We can handle it. And we prayed that he would make it. And I'm very grateful that God gave me a second alcoholic in my life. So that I could maybe do it a little better the second time around than I did that first time, and he did make it that night. And he went and when he was getting out of the hospital, out of the third treatment thing, they they make up this contract, you know, and they said we're going to have this big contract. And I told the counselor, I said no. I says, I just had one question for him, and I turned to my son and I said, Are, are you an alcoholic? And he said yes. And the thing was, he didn't have any place to live. And he didn't know whether he wanted to come back to home and live at home. And I, I said, well, I said, the only alcoholics who live in my house are the ones who go to AA. I said, you don't have to go to meetings as long as you don't live in my house. But if you come in my house and you're an alcoholic, you go to meetings. And he agreed. He said, I'll go. And I can understand where he was coming from at that time. I was the outline delegate. My wife was in service. We weren't low profile. A lot of people knew us. And he didn't want to go into meetings and be Dennis and Charlene's son. And and want to be accepted for himself, who he was. And he has done that. And I was very proud this this past January when he got his 10-year token. And four days later, when my wife got her 19th. This program has been so good to us. This past year was so exciting for us. For the first time you know, in 92, we became grandparents twice. And our youngest son and his wife had a little baby girl in March. And I thought back to the days when our son was in that treatment center, and they had this thing called Family Week, and you go out there and you sit in the middle and tear each other apart. And um, the um, and I can remember one very vivid thing about the kids talking about, you know, their mother walking out and and you know passing out in the yard in the neighborhood, and all the neighbors seeing her and the, how embarrassed they were and how bad they felt and everything, and the things that happened and how you know how they felt when they were kids. and and there was a lot of resentments and a lot of anger and, and, you know, shame and all this stuff. Same kind of stuff I felt. But this past March 16th, when that little girl was born, they called us and they said her name is Charlene. I know it means a lot to her. I think it means as much to me that we mended those Relationships with our children that were in such shambles. And in November, when our oldest son had a little boy, my middle name is Michael, he named him Michael. That was the hardest thing of recovery. I remember very early in meetings, and they said that the children Mend their relationships with the alcoholic much faster than they do with the alcoholic. Because they can see the alcoholic drinking and they know what the problem is. But what's wrong with the non-drinker? Why are they acting the way they do? And I acted pretty bad to those kids. And today, we have a wonderful relationship. I love both my sons. I love my daughter-in-laws and I love my grandkids. They're the best grandkids in the world, of course. I've showing everybody here pictures. You can all come up and see the pictures afterwards. But um, we were in Pittsburgh last weekend for our granddaughter's first birthday party. It was wonderful. So our life is pretty complete today. I'm in a job I love. I'm in a program I love. I have lots of friends I love. We had a family portrait you know, picture taken day after Christmas, first one we've ever had with the all the son, the daughter-in-law, the grandchildren and my sister. And and another thing recently has become pretty good, too. Is, you know, my sister, um, she's a nun and, you know, she, she's been in the convent since 1956. And one time she came to the World Service Conference. She was working in New York and she was my guest at the banquet. And she saw all the things that were going on in the program and, and people giving hugs and, you know, all the fellowship. And we were walking out and she knew I didn't go to church very much. At the time, I, I, I really wasn't in, into the church. And uh, she gave me a hug in the parking lot and she says, you found your church. And at the time, that was it. But in the last year and a half or so, we... we that, that's meant it, too. We're, we're, we're back, and we're going back on a regular basis. And that's that's meant a lot to me, the fact that I could... I know that God forgave me. I forgave myself a long time ago, but I finally realized God forgave me, too. And uh, so our, our life is real happy today. And it's just, again, I'd like to thank the fellowship, and thank all of you, and thank the committee for inviting me down here. And I'd like to just end with a little thing of... Um, I bought a plaque for one of my wife's anniversaries, and it's, I bought it because I like it, and I still do like it. And it says, Learn from yesterday. Live for today. Dream of tomorrow. I can learn from yesterday, because yesterday I went to a meeting and I heard a wonderful message. It says, Live for today. That's what the whole program is about. One day at a time. This is the only day I have to live for. And dream of Tomorrow. I can dream of my tomorrows because I can remember back 19 years ago when those ladies in that room were afraid to sit near me. But every night after the meeting, they came up and they'd give me a hug and they'd say, Keep coming back. Things get better. Just that unconditional love. And I kept coming back and things get better. And I know as long as I keep coming back, my tomorrows will be better. This program will give me what I need in life. Not necessarily what I want, but what I need. I'm so very grateful. That's so much better than it was when I got here. When when I hated yesterday, and I regret it today, but the worst of all was the fear of tomorrow. And thanks to this program, I don't have to live that way anymore. For that, I thank you. And I love all of you. Thank you.